to the Wagner Ministries International Podcast. As you listen to this message, our prayer is that you would be motivated and empowered to follow Christ and lead others to Him. Enjoy. God bless you, my friends. This is Evangelist Kevin Wagner, founder of Wagner Ministries International, welcoming you to our podcast today. On our last podcast, we looked at the stoning of Stephen and I encouraged you to keep on being obedient and faithful in the big and little things of your life, even if you're discouraged because you haven't seen many positive results, because every soul needs a Stephen. Every world changer needs someone to show them that there's a world to change, and God will use you to bear fruit even if you don't see it ripen until glory. And so today we begin chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with these haunting words. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. This was foreshadowing what was to come. On that great day, a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let's stand back and catch our breath for a minute. Let's see where we are on our timeline. This is 34 or 35 AD. Today we see the partial fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You remember that the book of Acts can be neatly divided into three sections based on Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1-8 that serves as a framework for the whole book. Chapters 1-7, to Jerusalem. Chapters 8-12, to Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13-28, to the ends of the earth. Just like an appendix that ruptures as the doctor is removing it, the early Christians broke loose, Dr. Luke tells us, scattering throughout the countryside as their enemies tried to hunt them down. That persecution that broke out in Jerusalem in those days, in the wake of Stephen's murder, it was brutal. It was enough to drive the early Christians away from their jobs, their houses, and their families to places unknown to them, with no idea how their needs would be cared for, except by trusting in God. Their faith was being refined and tested in a brutal first-century Palestinian fire. Yet the Bible says all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Why did the apostles stay when their brothers and sisters were forced to flee? You may think as I did that this seems rather unfair for them to be able to enjoy the comforts of home while the rest were fleeing for their lives. But this is not the case. There are several good reasons for the apostles staying put. The twelve may have wanted, like every good captain, to go down with the ship, so to speak. They would have learned their lesson well from Jesus, who taught them in John 10 that the man who deserts his sheep is just a hired hand and cares nothing for his sheep. The apostles knew they were more than hired hands. They would have been willing to lay down even their own lives like Stephen did if it meant preserving the mother church in Jerusalem until the bitter end. It's also possible that the persecution in Jerusalem was directed primarily against Stephen's countrymen, the Greek-speaking Christians, and that the Christians native to Israel, like the Twelve Apostles, would have been spared some of the initial persecution at least. 
There is also an interesting tradition recorded by at least two notable early church fathers that Jesus himself had commanded the apostles to remain for 12 years in Jerusalem so that no one in the holy city could say, we haven't heard about Jesus. After those 12 years then, the apostles would be free to go into the rest of the world. It's also possible that the persecution now raging was directed especially against those Christians who, like Stephen, taught that the customs, rules, laws, and traditions that the Pharisees stressed so much should pass away. The apostles had not as yet proclaimed that truth boldly. That comes a few chapters down the road. The twelve may well have still enjoyed the favor and honor of a great number of people in Jerusalem, and this popularity would have, in part, shielded them from the full onslaught of the storm. And so the as the persecution raged, and as the apostles stayed in the eye of the storm, the Bible mentions Stephen one last time. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Early tradition surrounding Stephen's burial says that Gamaliel and Nicodemus, two men whom we remember were likely secret followers of Jesus in the Jewish ruling council, helped bury their friend and brother whose courage they knew far surpassed their own. You can imagine them thinking and despairing on that dark day in Jerusalem, Stephen gave up his life for Jesus. I wouldn't even give up my expensive robes and honor. But that's going to change. That's all going to change. Stephen's death, as I said in our last pod podcast, had a great impact on Saul, soon to be Paul. But, you can, but can you imagine the impact that it made on men like Nicodemus and Gamaliel as well? Two men too afraid to testify before Stephen came along who became two men too convicted to do anything but testify afterwards. Now, in Israel at that time, someone who had been stoned to death on the charge of blasphemy, like Stephen, would have had no funeral honors like this. The public burial and mourning for Stephen, therefore, on the part of men like Gamaliel and Nicodemus, people well known for their dedication to and zeal for the Old Testament law, would have been their way of making a public protest. Stephen's death would have been a first century ancestor to a long line of unjust and unneeded murders demanding a public statement and protest, signaling the fact that there simply must be a better way. And when Gamaliel and Nicodemus helped spearhead that first century protest, they realized that everything they had strived for and worked towards their entire adult lives would crumble around them like sandcastles at high tide. But they were ready. Their position, their power, their expensive robes, their public acclaim, all of it would come crashing down in an instant because they went public with their love for Jesus. But they were ready. They were ready. They weren't ready before, but after Stephen, yeah, they were ready. Because Stephen's blood reminded them of Jesus' words. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Build up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. He who loses his life for my sake will keep it. And then the words they couldn't ignore. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. No more seats of honor. No more people ooing and aahing as they passed by. No more pride. 
because there was really nothing much left to be proud of in the eyes of the world at least. But for Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and men like them that dark first century day in Jerusalem, they were ready because all that really mattered to them by that point was Jesus' acclaim. Well done, good and faithful servants. How about you? Is that all that really matters to you today? Are you there yet? Verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. The Greek words translated began to destroy imply continuous action, indicating how severe the persecution was. It meant on and on. When would it ever stop? And Saul was right there in the thick of things. The Bible says he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The King James Version says, and hailing men and women, Saul committed them to prison. Now, I had never seen that word hailing before, so I looked it up. It means with great force and brutality, which might well have been spared on these early Christians, but it wasn't. There was a kind of insane ferociousness in Saul's violence. The Living Bible says, Saul was like a wild man, going everywhere to devastate the believers. The image I get of Saul is of the Tasmanian devil in those old Bugs Bunny cartoons, you know, spinning like a top, propelled by his hatred and anger, seeking to destroy anyone, anywhere, who loved Jesus. Saul was a whirling dervish of ferocious energy, like the proverbial chicken with his head cut off, using his last dying energy to frantically run and wreak havoc like a mother bear shot and dying, but terribly vicious, desperately trying to protect what was left of his former life. Saul was like Satan, the master of his soul at that point, who was degraded by the resurrection of Jesus, but who still wanders around like a roaring lion. Satan is like a bee whose sting was received by Jesus on Calvary, but was swallowed up in victory by the empty tomb and whose incessant buzzing still causes confusion today. Remember, the man wreaking the havoc was Saul, soon to be Paul, but he was still Saul, and the spirit of hatred was in him. This Saul, who had already seen two of his colleagues come to Christ, breathed threats of slaughter against the Christians. He laid waste the church, dragging men and women into prison, beating them that believed. The Word of God says that he put many in prison, making havoc of the church beyond measure. And isn't this how it so often is? I remember as a boy when the girl that I liked the most or was on the verge of falling for was always the one who I would harass the most and rant and rave up and down that I didn't have any interest in, desperately trying to convince others and especially myself that I didn't like her. What we see in Paul today are the last gasps of a dying man. Here is a man whose past was crumbling. The foundations of his life were being shaved away like a man whittling wood. In a few short weeks, this Saul would become Paul. Everything that Saul had ever believed in, everything that he had committed his life to, was shown to be nothing more than a grand illusion. And it was Jesus' fault. And he hated Jesus for it, 
And yet, he loved what Jesus could do for a man like Stephen. How many of you have ever said you hated something, sworn up and down that you would never have anything to do with him or her, cursed and despised this or that group of people, only to have to eat a smorgasbord full of crow a short while later? You've been there. You put out so much energy running away from that thing that eventually you collapse, exhausted. Because energy fueled by anger and hate can't last forever. I've been there. You've been there. We've all been there. And that's where Saul was in Acts chapter 8. And that's where many people in your lives are today. People, there are individuals in your lives right now who are hostile to Christianity. Oh yes, they will put up with you so long as you leave your religion at the door. There are people who have trouble with you for no other reason than that you love Jesus. But guess what? Many times, too many times to count. It's the loudest and most vocal opponent of Christianity who, like Saul, is on the verge of breaking. Isn't that true? It is often, not always, but often, the most outspoken opponent of Jesus who is the closest to coming to Christ. That's because, like Saul, the Holy Spirit is working on that man or woman. He's breaking him or her down inside so he or she will surrender and let Jesus resurrect him or her. Our problem generally is that we give up too easily. We hear the person mocking us and we avoid him. We stop praying for her because we think it's hopeless. We stop caring for a heart we think is too hard for even the Holy Spirit to break. And we retreat back into the safety of our Christian confines and our holy huddle. When what the Lord wants us to be doing is pressing on. Because just a little more energy, a bit more effort, a few more words, and some praying will be all it takes to get that person over the edge and into the arms of Jesus. We put our hands to the plow, people. But we look back instead of pushing forward. And Jesus says that when we do that, we're not fit for the kingdom of God. I close today with a story. Several years ago, a hardened criminal was a prisoner in a large American prison. He was literally consumed with hate for everyone and everything, from his parents for conceiving him to the system for convicting him. Angry people like that aren't much fun to be around, and hence this man had very few visitors. But one day, a small, unassuming man dared to venture near this cell of hate. He was armed only with a Bible, a regular Christian layman like any one of you, just coming to make his regular prison visitation, simply because Jesus said we should in the Bible. And as this man approached the cell, he simply told the angry man inside that Jesus loved him and wanted to change his life and make it better. At that, the prisoner spit in his face and tried to grab the man and his Bible. The Christian simply said he would be praying for the prisoner, and he left, being serenaded by furious obscenities as he made his way down the corridor. The next day, the regular Christian layman, just like any one of you, came back again, said the same thing, got the same response, and left. The next day, the same thing happened, and on and on it went. Eventually, the angry prisoner got saved. He gave his life to Jesus and began following him wholeheartedly. Recalling his conversion, this former prisoner to sin said this, 
It was the love of Jesus that finally broke my heart. And it was the persistence of that Christian's love that just wouldn't give up on me that ultimately broke me down. Day after day, he would come to me to get spit on and yelled at until finally one day I broke. I couldn't resist that type of love for a man like me. If he had given up on me after two, three, or four visits, I wouldn't be here today. But he came to me every single day for 11 years. 11 years? Now, friends, that humbles me. It humbles me because, honestly, I don't know if I would have stuck it out that long. Would you have? I am humbled by that regular Christian's love for Jesus and his burden for the precious soul of that prisoner that resulted in that sort of dedication. People, the world may oppose you. They may yell, they may rant, and they may rave. But remember that all the time when those Tasmanian devils are whirling, trying to play you out, to sap you of the joy of the Lord that is your strength, remember that the Holy Spirit is working overtime on their hearts and that the battle for their soul is not yours but the Lord's. So stand firm under the opposition you're receiving. If you're not receiving any opposition, then find some because no opposition usually means no significant fruit either. Start talking about Jesus when you're out and about, at Starbucks or wherever else you may be. As long as it's outside the comfortable confines of the church or the holy huddle, you'll receive opposition faster than Wayne Gretzky used to snap a wrist shot. And be encouraged when that opposition is loud and fierce. Because Saul was Saul the opposer in Acts chapter 8, but became Saul the promoter in Acts chapter 9. You see, by the power of God, friends, you haven't read the end of the book yet. You're still a key part in writing it. You may be stuck in chapter 8 right now, but persevere, friends, until you see chapter 9 written. You may be meeting some of the, these people now over your summer break. People you've prayed for and witnessed to for a long time, but have received nothing back but cold stares or harsh words. Well, I encourage you today to put your hand to that plow and don't look back because the power of God can use you to help change the souls in your life to Paul's and your bleak Acts chapter 8's to dazzling Acts chapter 9's. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you victory in this regard in the days ahead. As always, my friends, I look so forward to our next podcast where we will move further into the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit uses His Word to help us walk daily in the power of God. Have a blessed day in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message. For more information regarding Wagner Ministries International, go to wagnerministries.org. And if you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at wagnerministries.org.